Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane. I'm a chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona, as well as strength coach and wrestling coach. With me, as always, I have Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to do a continuation on our anatomical approach to training series. Uh, we're going to be talking about the knee and talking about different ways around training the knee. I'm going to talk about different injuries that are associated with the knee and combat sports, um, as well as just different little tips that you can use tomorrow that's going to benefit you. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this whole anatomical approach has been uh, really valuable. I think the trunk training offered a lot of insight that um, I definitely appreciate, and it gives me a different approach. So I'm excited to see where we go with the knee. Heck yeah. So talking about the knee, we talk about the knee is a hinge joint. So obviously flexion extension. Um, or bending of the knee and straightening of the knee as but a lot of people don't realize that it also rotates so there's going to be about five to eight degrees of rotation both internally so your that little point in the front of your knee underneath your kneecap can turn inside and outside and when we don't have those ranges of motion that's what leads to a lot of our ligamentous damage right so outside of our direct contact somebody playing football, get a knee to the back or a shoulder to the back of the knee, we get a rupture. A lot of the times those wear and tear injuries, quote unquote, are going to be from a lack of our internal and external rotation of the tibia or our shin bone that attaches to the knee. Yeah. And I think MMA and combat grappling specifically is one of these, these uh, sports that you specifically need that range of motion, that rotation through your knee. Think about how um, how much range of motion you need to be able to achieve just to get your hooks in or to fight out of hooks or, or I mean, playing jujitsu and grappling in general. I mean, everything has to be able to access that, those ranges of motion. And then that's where you get susceptible to things like leg locks and then, um, and knees can become at risk when they do stiffen up or when we aren't actively taking care of that mobility or actively, um, searching for more of that range of motion. Well, and, Thinking about also like powering through a double. How, how do you finish a double? You need to activate the, you want to activate the glutes, right? If you're lacking tibial rotation one way or the other, you can't get that knee to turn out. It's like that actual movement where we activate the glutes. It's an entire chain, right? If you don't have a foot arch, that's going to decrease glute activation. If you don't have tibial rotation externally, that's going to decrease tibial or uh, glute activation. And all the way through the cascading of the chain. So it's a good thing that we can train <laughs> this, this quality with our different mobility exercises. Um, and I'll link, I'll have Alex link something in the show notes of a, of a YouTube video that you can do this with. But this is where we talked about in the past, those that FRC, functional range conditioning. This is where I use, the, honestly, this is probably the number one drill I use for, from FRC outside of hip cars. And it's going to be a car. So what it, what a car is, it's called a controlled articular rotation. So that's a bunch of fancy words for it's trying to hit all of the planes of movements possible in the joint in a rotatory pattern. So what you do is you're going to start with your toe facing in, you're going to extend the knee, then you're going to go toe facing out and then flex the knee. And then the opposite going up and down. And that starts building up that internal and external rotation of the tibia that allows you to get into the positions we need to get into. And a good test that you can do to look at this is if you lay on your back face up, try to, with your knee at 90 degrees, turn your toe in without your knee moving and turn your toe, big toe out without your knee moving. And that's a good way that you can see, do I have internal rotation and external rotation? So 
toe in would be internal, toe out would be external. And that's just something you can do on your own to see, hey, maybe we need to fix something. Maybe, maybe we need to go down this rabbit hole of doing the FRC movements before we work out, before we practice. Right. And I think that's, that's hugely in, interesting or important to try and look at those different segments along the chain. And, and I'm kind of guilty of it. I think when I prescribe training loads or when I am uh, in the gym or working with some of my athletes, I, I just view the knee as part of the system, right? I think about ankle, knee, hip, and the stabilization with the posterior chain, anterior chain, whatever's happening. A lot of the times, too, I look at the foot really in depth, and I look at the hips and the glutes really in depth. A lot of times, I skip over the knee, quite honestly. I make sure that it's aligned and everything, but um, having an assessment like that or having – go ahead, Austin. I was just going to say, it, you and every, like everybody does, because right. the knee is literally just the middle the, – the knee's the middle child. It's the one that's forgotten, right? It gets the brunt of both ends. If the hip doesn't move, guess what? The knee has to move, which causes damage. If the ankle doesn't move, guess what? The knee has to move, which, which can cause damage. And, but nobody ever thinks about it, but always gets injured. It's, it's the number, according to the UFCPI book, I think it's the number two train number two area for training injuries out of the entire body is going to be your knee. So yeah, very common. I, I, I don't, um, I don't doubt that or I don't um, – anyway, what I'm saying is, yeah, I, I overlook it. I make sure that we're lined up and that it's aligned. And other than that, it's got a job to do and it flexes and extends. You know, and there's not a whole lot of corrective-based exercise. There's not a lot of um, attention specifically that I give to the knee, which, um, like you said, it needs to be to str- be strong and have the capability of that internal external rotation. But I think um, understanding that and – and really facilitating a program based around the mobility and, and stability of the knee is, it should be a higher value than it is. So Alex, speaking on that, what, what are some solid knee dominant patterns that people can do tomorrow or throw into their programming that's going to A, strengthen the knees, whether it's, whether it's hamstrings, quads, what have it, um, but B, that are, that are knee dominant versus hip dominant? Well, I mean... I on a bias and looking at a weightlifting or an Olympic based squat would say squat, right? The, the way that I squat is very knee dominant and that strains the quad and there's back and forth on that a million times over, but, um, single leg, uh, squat, whether it's Bulgarian or just, uh, a floating back leg. I, I think those have been immensely important in my programming. I think creating the unilateral strength and the ability to stabilize while still expressing strength in a good movement pattern has been invaluable um, into how I program nowadays. And now I actually won't program a, a, a strength training plan without a, a unilateral based day or unilateral based uh, exercise block. So some of those unilateral squat patterns, um, if we're talking about the posterior chain, I'm a big fan of things like hamstring bridges, leg curls, um, using sliders on the turf or using um, a sore next GHR, things that, again, create the hamstring activation from a knee dominant position because I think hip dominant uh, again, hip dominant hamstring activation is very common. And I think it's um, preached and done a lot. I think knee dominant movement because the hamstring is a, a secondary knee flexor, right? So we need to use that in that capacity, especially in our running based sports, which I know uh, MMA is not um, exclusively a running based sport, but there's still a lot of distal hamstring activation when we're, uh, when we're rolling or looking for an arm bar or um, doing things like that. And I've experienced that even in my own jujitsu practice to kind of help put the hamstrings in, uh, 
in in context for me when I was trying to squeeze for a, uh, an arm bar and uh, coach kept telling me to drag your heels into their side or drag the heels into their shoulder. And I was like, man, my hamstrings are cramping. What, what, am, I, what am I not doing in my training that my hamstrings are cramping? <laughs> no, dude, I feel the same way. Like whenever I ride legs, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. Either my hamstrings cramp or the other thing I want to talk about the adductors. So the inside of our leg, our adductor magnus is that big adductor muscle that goes down and attaches in the medial knee. That's responsible for a lot of medial knee pain that you're feeling. It's not going, it's not always the MCL, like, like everybody thinks it is for whatever reason. Um, it's going to be the adductor magnus or the nerve that's associated in that area that that could be going through causing any sort of irritation. So some ways I, l- I like to train the adductor. I love adductor training. I do it with everybody just because we do s- think about squeezing your knees together, trying to lock somebody else in place. If you're playing guard, that is adductors. <laughs> that is, that is not exclusively, but that's, I would say probably 80% adductors. Well, when you have hooks in and you're on the back, like, I mean, number one thing any wrestler has ever, ever learned is to squeeze with your knees and, and try and control their hips, you know? Exactly. And the best way to train it, I know crazy enough is not going to be the leg together, legs apart <laughs> machine that you sit on. I know that that's crazy to hear, but, but that's not the best way to train it for a combat athlete. Um, so, so one thing, or actually two things that I've been doing a whole bunch of with my guys and girls down in Scottsdale have been Copenhagen planks, a great, great, great way to isometrically load the area. So a good way to, to help you learn how to use your adductors. Essentially, it's going to be like our, our base contraction where we don't have to move, but we can hold that air, hold the contraction as well as adductor rock backs. So it's training a hinge. I know this is knee, a knee day, but we're going to do a hinge pattern along with the other leg is straight and driving your instep into the ground, loading that adductor on the inside and allowing you to, again, get that isometric contraction or that, that reaction or not reaction, um, like that intro contraction of the adductor. Yeah. And that's very similar to what I've been doing. And then um, I'm glad that you mentioned the adductors because in the groin area, because that has become more of a, a prerequisite or a box to check to ensure that I am uh, preparing an athlete for whatever, for a squat day, for a stabilization in the knee. Um, so we a lot of times add this into our movement prep or our um, pre-lift type of area. And so we've done a lot of Copenhagen plates and I think they're awesome and I love them. Um, what, have, what else I've played around with, and I think this goes down the same rabbit hole of kind of the co-contraction that happens with the Copenhagen plank with the core and the adductors working in the same time is I've taken like the slam balls, the squishy balls that have sand in them, you know, and you put those between the knees and that just gives an athlete, you know, free reign to, to maximally, and I guess isometrically contract in the adductors. And I put athletes in a lot of various uh, positions trying to maintain a stable base and pattern while squeezing that ball, you know, whether it's a squat pattern or whether we're in a low bear and we have the knees off the ground yeah. squeezing there. Um, but no, that's gotten a lot of activation for me in that sense. Dude, dude, I do that a bunch with breathe. It's, I know Austin talking about breathing again. I do that a bunch with breathing work because it helps pull the pelvis underneath a little bit. Right. So by, by activating the adductors, that's going to help with a little bit of a posterior pelvic tilt that aligns the diaphragms. So just doing that alone is going to increase the movement quality of our squat patterns of our low bear of all these different patterns. 
So not just with the adductor, just in general, it's going to make the movement better. Oh, which so is we're talking about the knees here. I know. I it's, know. It's, I, get, I get excited, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I think that's a, that's an interesting point to bring up too, is that even though we're taking out one chunk of our, our functional anatomy or one chunk of our anatomy to focus on and talk about it, it would be amiss for us to not mention the whole system or the whole body that it's incorporated with. I think that's a common fallacy. And I mean, it's, day one in the educational system, right? You know, this is anatomy. This is what this is. This segment is this part of your body. But in reality, your body moves as one cohesive flow, free flowing unit. Like it's impossible to isolate and, you know, cut into pieces a living person and human that's trying to move. That'd be cool though. I mean, yeah. And I know that that's what, that's what you like to do, but. (laughs) (laughs) No. um, All right. I got a question for you. Are you pro forward lunge or are you pro backwards or reverse lunge? Um, I you think pro both. I like both. First, you swing. You swing both ways is what you're uh, saying on a lunge, I guess. Um, but no, I think a reverse lunge is a, is a safer movement to load up heavy and to use for more of a strength um, emphasis. But I, I think a healthy athlete that has uh, low to minimal knee pain or uh, can tolerate a forward lunge. I, I don't see a problem doing it. I understand the the logic of a lot of tension on the patellar tendon and everything and, and, and loading that pattern. But I think a healthy athlete that can tolerate that load and I, I would never put, you know, a bar on the back and do a forward lunge. I don't think that's necessarily appropriate, but I would put a bar on the back and do a reverse lunge. Um, but walking yeah. lunges, forward lunges, I think those are all fine as accessory movements. Yeah. And, and why I'm saying that. So lunge is going to be another one of those knee dominant patterns for the most part. Mm-hmm. So the lunge is going to be that 90, 90 knee contraction. And it's basically just going to be a split squat with more movement. Um, I feel I, I am with Alex. I am bilungual new term. Stop. Just <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. Sorry, everybody listening. Sorry about that. And him, this is just something that I tolerate every day. Yeah. But, um, so I, I like, I honestly, I use reverse lunges more just because it trains that pattern of bringing the leg back up. It's just similar to a shot. It trains that grooves, that pattern of stepping back up to, or stepping forward instead of stepping backwards. But the same argument argument could be made of, Hey, if you got a Greco wrestler, you need to step in with a high dive to pull back. And that's going to be, that's literally just a forward lunge. So to each their own but it's a great pattern to help strengthen up the knee and like Alex was saying it does put a little bit of stress on the patellar tendon but if you know how to again thinking about the chain load the hip properly your knee's not caving in all these different these different topics that are are hot button issues in strength conditioning and healthcare um, you you have a minimal risk no matter what you're doing as long as you have a solid coach or you have a solid understanding or at least it was explained to you properly, then you're, you're pretty much at a lower risk of injury, no matter what. Um, I got one for you, I guess. What have you seen or, or what is your opinion on a rotational lunge? Do you know what I'm talking about when I, when I say rotational lunge? Are you talking about like the star lunges? Or are you talking about like, uh, I do like, rot- we talked about rotational rear foot elevated split squats where I rotate over the front leg. Right. So what I'm talking about with the rotational lunge is, is an athlete's picture them standing on a clock, right? They're standing at, at 12 o'clock top of the clock and then they take their right leg we'll say and they step it back to where like 3 p.m on the clock would be and then they lunge into that pattern i can link a video of that in the show notes too but um so they're stepping oh the the back leg is stepping obliquely to the side yep 
and then is facing 90 degrees away from the body. So they're turning their torso and their body to go over the toe. Back legs oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So like a reverse curtsy. Sure. It's the opposite of a curtsy lunge. So instead of stepping behind the leg, you're stepping out to the side and rotating over the top of the leg. If you know me, you know I'm always on the run, up early and home late. So having a three-hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because it was, I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash provengrit. Check it out. If you know me, you know I'm always on the run up early and home late. So having a three-hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because it was, I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash proven grit. Check it out. Yeah. So, in, but with the curtsy lunge, right, we keep the hips and the chest facing forward and, right. and work a little bit on the hip. This one, we're completely styling out and turning towards that knee. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I don't see anything. I don't see anything wrong with it. As long mm-hmm. as the front, as long as the front leg's stable. That's, that's my biggest thing with lunges is that the front leg is, is your stable unit the back leg if you're doing a reverse lunge is the moving unit right so as long as you can stabilize the pattern you can load the hip and the knee which is what we're talking about in a a proper manner i hate using that term because there's no there's no right way but in a safe manner i guess is the is the term then that 
bro, it's just going to increase the hip activation. Yeah, and, and I like it. And it, I, I've seen it specifically with a lot of hockey guys because it, it does work the, the external rotation on the hip when you go into that lunge too. But I, I think it works well to um, load and rotate, and it's another transverse plane movement that we often ignore the transverse plane a lot of training. So, Well, yeah. and that's that's a good point, and it's it goes to the first point we made about internal and external rotation of the tibia that a lot of knee training is just sagittal. So that means straight up and down in that like vertical plane, if you will. Um, The best way to strengthen our knees is going to be to add in the different ranges of motion. That's what the cars do. It adds it, it, it brings it into a transverse plane. That's what this rotational lunge that Alex is talking about. That's what it'll do. It'll train you to better handle the transverse plane, which is almost every sport. Very seldom in, in grappling MMA wrestling, you're going to hit a straight on sagittal. I mean, you think of a blast double, but even that has a lot of, lot of lateral movement aspects to set it up or to go, but very seldom are you moving in a straight line forward, backward, um, in specifically MMA period. Um, another thing I wanted to get your, uh, opinion on is I forgot what it was. Um, talking about rotation through the knee. Oh, okay. Another thing I want to get your opinion on is knee valgus during a squat or knee valgus during a vertical jump, um, or, or something similar. And I think obviously knee valgus has been demonized and, you know, everybody thinks it's the worst thing ever, but, um, I want to hear what, what your opinions of that are. All right. So, so I have, two, I have two sides. So first okay. we got to explain, we got to explain knee valgus. So knee valgus is going to be the knees caving together during a squat. So it's going to be that pattern that a lot of people, when, when you think about like a faulty squat, it's when your feet are out, your knees cave and try to touch each other and you can't, you're not activating the hip. Um, when you don't activate the hip, it causes damage to the, uh, the, not damage, but it could irritate the medial knee because that part of the knee is collapsing upon each other. And that's where you lead to your adductor strains. That's where you lead to your um, MCL issues, all these different things. So from the training side of things, there's, I really, I'm kind of neutral on it. As long as it's in a safe manner, we know that a little knee valgus is going to help our plyometric movements because because the knee has rotation. So a little bit of a knee valgus isn't going to be terrible as long as it's not in excess. In excess, that's going to cause damage to the ligamentous structures in the area. In excess, it could irritate the nervous system in the area and cause a further stretch. Um, But as long as it's just a little bit of knee valgus, that's going to assist with our plyometric movements. That's going to assist with our explosive movements, especially if we're doing like, say like a repeat jump. The problem is who is to say what is excess for that athlete. And it comes from the assessment that you do. So for, I think, um, who was the basketball player that had that terrible, uh, Paul George is, is that he destroyed his knee a while ago. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm asking the wrong guy. Yeah. Um, I think I pay attention to any <laughs> professional sports or NBAs. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if it was him. There was some basketball player that jumped up for it jumped up either for a layup or a rebound and came down and just his knee collapsed immediately and boom, shredded basically every ligament in his knee guys like that they have so much they have so so much power so much explosiveness um, that maybe knee valgus 
isn't the best thing unless you know the knee is stable and you need to train the landing mechanics, which is something else that I feel like we should mention that landing mechanics are just as important as jumping mechanics for the knee, because you need to be able to catch yourself. You need to do that hold because you need that reactive, which we've talked about that reactive stability. If your brain doesn't know that it can stabilize the area, it's not going to let you get any higher on your jumps on your power output. Um, so I guess the long story short of my of my knee valgus stance is it's good in small doses, but in general, I would say that I would prefer a neutral knee. Yeah, and I, th- I think I, I've been exposed to very similar things um, through all my experiences and research, and and I completely agree with what you're saying. And it, it comes down to knowing your athlete, right? Is is that knee valgus a fault and a weakness in the glute meter in the hip stability, or is that knee valgus a common pattern and, and the knee rotation that yields more power. Um, and you need to know an athlete and see that repetitively because there's all types of examples. If you watch NFL players on the field, if you watch, you know, somebody striking in, in the octagon, there's all types of examples of knee valgus and everybody demonizes it. And in the weight room, it's like worst thing ever. Don't do this. You know, it's like you need knees over toes or even further out all the time, every time, period. And, and I think, I think that's just a little too overt of a stance. Well, and I, I think it's a good, a good thing to mention that high performance isn't healthy. Like, like, um, I'm not going to, I will never, ever, I will say it with absolute certainty. I will never train a 45 year old gen pop patient to do any sort of knee valgus. I'm going to correct it one every single time. But if I'm working with like, but, but I don't work with those, it sounds bad, but I don't really work with those people. If I'm working with my, with, my higher level fighters, I'll let them get away with little knee valgus if we're doing some sort of power output movement where I need them to use that spring. And as long as I've already ruled out the the possibility that they lack tibial internal and external rotation. Yeah, so, 100% but, yeah. contextual. And then, yeah, and, and it's just being able to recognize that. And it, it's hard to see unless you've watched it before too. Um, so I think that's important. But the, the thing that you also hit on was landing mechanics. And I think, again, plyometrics have gone crazy, training plyometric and, and um but landing from the plyometric jump, landing from any type of power output where you're flying through the air is so important. And the knee stability, valgus, um, varus, anything that has to do with that is rapidly applied in the landing. And very few people think about the landing um, as far as athletes. And I think the first progression for me is in a plyometric where I'm doing box jumps and I've started a lot of, you know, high school, middle school athletes and I'm teaching them to do box jumps the first time first thing i'm doing is a snap down a depth drop single leg depth drop single leg snap down things like that so that they have the um the landing capability and the ability to rapidly stabilize through their ankle foot knee hip torso there's not suboptimal rotation going on there's not a a lack of ability there i want to actually see that we can coordinate that landing before we start to jump on the boxes or before we start to try and chase any sort of like power output or distance type of goals. Well, and dude, the brain is so smart. Like people don't realize how smart the brain is. Yeah. The number one goal of your brain is to make sure that there's no damage to the body. So think about like, if you don't know how to land, that is a physical or a, I guess a neurologic restrictor plate on power output. 
If you don't know how to land in a broad jump, your brain will not let you get further in your broad jump. No matter how much power output you have, no matter how much, like how many go muscles you can, you can do to get further. If you don't know how to land, you're always going to have that neurologic restrictor plate because again, the number one goal is for you not to shred your hips, shred your knees all these different things. So it, it's not to perform in a broad jump as much as athletes and NFL combine athletes really think it is. Your, your brain's tricky. It, it doesn't give a shit about your combine performance. It gives a lot more fucks about you, like yeah, actually right. living longer. Right. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I love that. I think, and that, that branches back to what I have learned as the central governing theory, right? And I learned it around fatigue, but I think it applies hugely into power output strength improvement too because like you said your body refuses to uh, refuses to push and the thing that makes it so interesting is it's, it's such a subconscious decision right you're not there's no thought in your head that i better not jump that far or else i'm going to tear something or, or i don't know how to land it's it just it happens right away and uh that ha- that's a theory the central governing theory is something that happens with fatigue a lot too there's, um, and what's popular to think is that your muscles wear out or they don't have enough energy to keep going or whatever. And, and that has been pretty debunked within the science. What more aptly happens is your brain signals to the muscles, signals to the chemical pathways and says, if we keep doing this, we're going to do significant damage and hurt ourselves. We better stop. And so it literally cuts off the supplies to your muscles through a, a neurological system. And, and your brain controls your fatigue there, even though you could in theory, still keep going because you have the, the capability, the central governor, which is your brain and your, your spinal cord, turns things off because it is afraid of those damages and, and injuries that could potentially happen. So um, that, that, I think, is a super interesting point and probably a one on its own later, but the central governor. Yeah. Um, bringing it back to the knee, there's, there's a couple injuries that I think are very common in MMA. So the first one I want to touch on, I'm not, I'm not going to touch on ACLs while they are common. Um, they get talked about so much and realistically, as far as MMA goes, like most of them come from contact. The, the crazy, the crazy ACL injuries are the ones like on a football field, the non-contact ones. And we can, if you want to learn about those, or you want to talk about those, I am more than happy to have conversations with you, but I want to touch on the ones that get a little less light because I think they're more common than people realize. So the first one's going to be your MCL strains or sorry, MCL sprains. Um, The MCL sprain is going to be the medial collateral or the medial collateral ligament right on the inside, right here. Or you're not on video. So it's right on the inside of the, yeah, my bad, everybody. It's right on the inside. (laughs) Uh, It's right on the inside of the knee. It's going to attach the femur to the tibia. All right. This is one that a lot of people get. You get a sprain, your whoever you go to, your ortho, Cairo, whoever says you have a sprain and you're out for two to three weeks. And they don't really give you much to do other than that. Right. They say, hey, maybe do a glute bridge here and there. That's literally what people do. It's dumb. But a lot of the times when it happens, so what a sprain is, a sprain is just a tearing, a, a grade of tearing of the ligament. So there's grade one, grade two, grade three. So grade one, it's, it's a minor. We can, I, I just call them minor, moderate, and severe. So we got minor, which is a little less than 25%. Moderate, which is going to be above 25% all the way up to severe, which is a full ripping of, of or full tear, full, full width tear of your MCL. So when we're talking about the MCL, 
some fantastic ways to decrease pressure on the medial knee are going to be actually to activate the lateral hip. So the outside of your glutes. That's why I said some people just say, hey, do some glute bridges and you'll be good to go. Um, Some things you can do on your own if you are told about MCL injuries, told you have an MCL problem, are going to be we can do glute bridges. That's, that's not a terrible option, but most combat athletes need a higher stimulus. If we talk about the said principle from weightlift, from just lifting in general, you need specific adaptations to the imposed demands. You need to impose demands to then get the adaptation, which means you need to get over the actual barrier to impose those demands. So single leg glute bridges, you can grab a hip circle. That's going to increase the demand that you ask upon your glutes, um, hinging. I do actually a lot of my knee rehab as dumb as it sounds are going to be like kettlebell deadlifts. That's a fantastic way to activate the outside of the hip to decrease the pressure on the knee and then gently just grade back into our knee pattern. So our squats, our lunges, our split squats, all these different things, as well as a lot, a lot of the times people don't talk about it, the calf, the gastroc muscle, also crosses the knee so it's it doesn't just it doesn't just stay on that lower leg it crosses over to the knee so doing so- different calf exercises as well are a fantastic way to assist and decrease pressure on the inside of that mcl that in that inside of the knee one thing i want to talk about as well with that is do you need surgery because everybody i think i would suffice it to say almost everybody on my team has come up to me saying like hey i have an mcl problem do i need surgery i'm like no you don't i currently have 10 percent of my mcl on my right knee and i live just fine i wrestle with all of these guys like i live a day-to-day life that i'm i'm 100 percent fine living it's to the point where if you can't kick the painful pathway or if you have nothing and maybe you're patrick mahomes and you need that lateral movement or you're like you're Connor, you're at, at the point in your career where lateral movement is inhibiting you where, you, where you can't do those movements, then we talk about maybe cleaning it up, getting a scope, or getting a graft. But for the most case, I would say in 80 to 90% of the actual cases in the MCL, you don't need surgery. It's going to be something that we can train around and strengthen everything else where you don't need to get that surgery and do that actual rehab and have to deal with the trauma of surgery. Okay. And I, and I'm, I'm actually fairly like, as far as I know, I'm a chiropractor, but I'm fairly pro surgery. Like a lot of the guy, I, I side a lot of the times with the surgeon because they know what the fuck they're doing. But for the, for the most part, MCLs, you don't need that surgery. The other one that I think doesn't get a lot of light and I know it's affected me and it's affected a lot of my teammates is going to be bursitis of the knee. Bursitis, a bursa sac is a little fluid sac around a joint to allow it to get more movement. So think about it like uh, uh, WD-40 for your joint. It's going to give fluid in the joint, allow the synovial joint, what the knee is, to move and try to and not creak as much. Um, to put to put it into uh, different terms. So with bursitis, if you have direct trauma onto one of these little bursa sacs, that can cause inflammation. Think about like with somebody, it happens a lot in the elbows and the knees, those hinge joints. So with somebody, if they have direct trauma, say you take a penetration step or a wrestling shot and you come down upon on top of it, you get that immediate flare up or that immediate inflammation in the area. Your knee kind of starts to jiggle. I know that's what happened to mine. Like I would run miles and stuff and my knee would just be jiggling. Um, and it also 
some to, uh, for, for the most case has a spontaneous resolution, which means it just goes away on its own after like three weeks, but it hurts like hell. <laughs> Have you ever had Bursa? Uh, yeah. Bursa issues? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, it's, it hurts like hell. It burns. You don't know what's going on. You don't want to take a shot. So you completely change the way that you train. Like it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you said, and it swells up right away, so you freak out when everything's yeah. happening. And yeah, <laughs> but um, some some ways that you can that you can get treatment upon it are again, we we stay away from the direct trauma that that I normally don't take things away. That's that's something I pride myself on. I'm I'm a doctor that doesn't take things away from people unless I absolutely need to. In the case of bursitis, if you're out of camp. I tell you to stay away from grappling days for the pure fact that you're just going to keep inflaming it. Um, you can load up the hip. This is where we can focus on our out of practice uh, skill sets. So we can focus on our strength work. We can focus on all these different movements that are going to benefit you and make you a better athlete. Because guess what? If your knee bursa, if you have bursitis of your knee, it's inflamed. There's nothing wrong with your upper body. <laughs> You can still do other things. You can still shadow box. You can still hit a bag. You can still come and work upper body work um, as well as you can also go get it drained. Um, I actually don't know the current literature on what orthos are doing as far as the procedure. They Basically what it is is you go in, you drain the liquid that's in there. It's typically going to be about one cc to two cc's. So like one of those little vials. And then in the past, they were injecting cortisone into there, I don't, which is an anti-inflammatory. I don't know if they're doing that anymore, just based off the current research on cortisone. Um, but they may be doing that to try to disallow um, the, the inflammation from popping back up again. That would be a question for Alex's sister. Yeah, right. So no, yeah, I think that's more medical. But so in general, if your knee hurts, it's not for no reason. Um, there's probably a, a reason behind it. And there is always, and I tell this to my athletes all the time, there's two, there's always something you can do, right? There's somewhere you can go see to get it assessed. There's modalities and modifications that can be made. If you're having knee pain and it is general or you don't know what it is, figure it out one, but two, don't just stop dead in the water. You know, you, there's, there's ways to move forward. And, and that's my number one pet peeve is when I talk to athletes, I'm like, I didn't come in that day because my knee was kind of hurting or swollen. It's like, even if we, it's a big squat day, like in your knee hurts, whatever. I can change that exercise as well within my capabilities. That know? is literally what people pay for, for the, they don't, you, they don't pay for you just because you look good and you, you want to be there to spot them. Right. They pay for the knowledge that you've accumulated. Yeah. which allows you to modify lifts. And, and that's <laughs> some of the most important stuff that we do, right? Is make those modifications and, and adapt to the, con uh, the context that you're in. So Also, that just a minor point on bursitis and knee inflammation. If your knee's inflamed, please do not hit it with your complex massage gun. That is going to make it worse. I just... It's something I've seen multiple times and I would like to get it out there. Like if you have bursitis of your knee, like, yeah, do it on your hip, do it on all the other stuff. Do not go directly over the inflammation with your compact massage gun. That's dumb. <laughs> this hurts. It must be good, right? Yeah, ex exactly. Um, but yeah, so as far as for the podcast, just remember that we, we want to focus on knee dominant patterns. The knee doesn't just flex and extend. It also rotates and it's a, and you need to figure out if yours does rotate or does not rotate because it's extremely important for grapplers in specific. Um, 
focusing on for lunges, you can do both. Make sure that neither one of them are painful before. And that goes for literally every exercise. If it's painful, please don't do that thing. Like it's the old like doctor meme, like, ha, stop okay. doing that. If it's hurt, if it hurts, yeah, right. Um, as well as MCLs and bursitis, you don't need to get surgery um, and find somebody in your area that, that handles sports rehab. That's able to assist you because neither one of them are, are like life sentences. You don't have to live with that diagnosis forever. So yeah, that's what I got. Thank y'all for listening. I think again, we, we, we covered a lot of stuff knee and around the knee and everywhere in between. But, um, but no, I think that was a pretty comprehensive lift of common injuries as well as, you know, training thoughts about the knee. Yeah. And we got into central governing theory. Love it. I like it. (laughs) <laughs> All right. That's our episode. Thanks for listening. If you guys get in contact with us, it'll be in the show notes, both our emails and our Instagram handles. If you got to shoot us a DM, feel free to shoot or send me any messages. Like I said, about knee injuries, always happy to spread some information, help you out any way I can. And thank you for listening. We appreciate it a bunch. Give us a like, and as well as rate us on Apple podcast. That's how we get out to more people is all those ratings. So thank y'all. Appreciate you. Bye.